Welcome to Bringing Light into Darkness, Monday News and Analysis. Tonight's show recognizes September 16, when the Mexican War of Independence was launched. The struggle then was against Spain, and it centered around the rights of Creoles, those born in the New World with Spanish ancestry and not given the same privilege of those born in Europe. Tonight's show is dedicated to all Central American, Latin American, and Caribbean peoples who may have originally been colonized by Spain and other Europeans, but today whose sovereignty is most challenged by our own U.S. foreign policy. Welcome, Alternative News listeners. This is 91.7 KOOP Community Radio. This is Bringing Light into Darkness News and Analysis. I am your host, Pedro Gatos, and we are transmitting from Austin, Texas. This show includes a pre-recorded interview on September 10th, 2020, which will be uploaded for your listening edification on the evening of Monday, September the 14th, 2020. You can listen live each Monday night from 6 to 7 p.m. Central Standard Time at koop.org. Many of the shows are archived at pedrogatos.org. All comments are welcomed and can be sent to Pedro at pgatos00 at gmail.com. That's pgatos00 at gmail.com. This is our 21st post-COVID show, A New World, But the Same Place. This month is our Co-op Radio's membership drive. And under COVID circumstances, our membership drive is taking new forms. This is Undercover Greg. Has anyone noticed any changes in Austin over the last six months? Yes, it has gotten and stayed hotter, but we have also been keeping socially distanced, washing our hands, and wearing our damn masks. For the safety of our beloved staff and programmers and volunteers, KOP has been working from home. Each day we craft a way on our own devices to bring you the sound of Austin that you have known and supported for over 25 years. This includes keeping your radio still screaming and news and public affairs shows that bring you timely information and help during the pandemic. A lot has been new and different for all of us. All through September, we are conducting our fall membership drive differently, with more of our wonderful content and less of our pitching. Think of it as a unique opportunity to support the station you love, KOOP. Listen in throughout the month as new and different fall membership drive will be morphing into new and different things. But don't hesitate to help us out by going to koop.org and the safe and secure online donation button. If you do have specific questions or issues related to the virus, please contact us at 512-710-5353 or at COVID-19 at koop.org. Remember, stay well, stay safe, stay weird, and stay listening to KOOP. So stay tuned. But first, as we do before every Bringing Light into Darkness news and analysis show, we first go to war. Slipping 
This is Bringing Light into Darkness, Monday News and Analysis, with your host, Pedro Gattos. Good evening. We now turn to the content of tonight's show. Welcome, Alternative News listeners. This is 91.7 KOOP, Hornsby, Austin. This is September 10th. We are broadcasting on a recorded interview that we're fixing on having with our guest. We'll introduce him more formally in just a second for broadcast on Monday, September the 14th. I wanted to start the show off by indicating that last week we provided detailed examples and proof regarding the nature of U.S. foreign policy. We shared findings from our investigative journalism that provided empirical proof to show how our foreign policy support consistently has been on the wrong side of what is best for the majority population of the countries it seeks to influence when measured by quality of life indices. Highlights of in-depth case studies of a half dozen of such example nations included Haiti, Iraq, Libya, Honduras, Ecuador, and Bolivia just since the turn of the century. We then proceeded in the balance of the show to visit with author and editor and our guest last week, Nan McCurdy, to detail the exact same U.S. foreign policy disposition in Nicaragua by revealing the outstanding accomplishments in human rights and quality of life improvements going on under the Nicaraguan government, a government we have relentlessly been trying to undermine. Tonight, we stay focused on the Nicaragua issue, but shift our attention to the means and methods of U.S. foreign policy illegal violations of the sovereignty of Nicaragua by penetrating into the internal affairs of Nicaragua in other countries' civil society. When you honestly unearth history of the colonization of the New World, then you begin to understand that what imperialism is, is essentially colonization through domination. What does that mean? It essentially means bullying rules that history. Reason, democracy, ethical, principled behavior is subordinated to might is right. Indigenous people of the New World were Holocaust in the process. It was mainly the Spanish and Portuguese who first conquered the New World, wiping out or enslaving the indigenous populations and in the process appropriating the wealth from their domination back to their host countries. The Spanish and Portuguese conquistadores, if you will, were then replaced by the burgeoning new colonial powers, England and France. Famously, the sun never set on the colonial possessions of the British Empire. Eventually, and through the Monroe Doctrine in 1823, the United States essentially let the European colonizers know that there was a new sheriff in town, that the Western Hemisphere's new premier colonizer was now the United States. Colonizing and domination did not change, but the leader of the international power structure of colonizers and neo-colonizers was changing. Invasions by U.S. Marines was always the most threatening form of intervention in order to secure markets that colonizers exploit. In May of 1927 to December of 1932, the U.S. Marines fought to a stalemate against the rebel bands of Nicaraguan nationalist fighters led by rebel leader Augusto Sandino. Guerrilla unconventional war tactics resulted in the stalemate with the much greater armed U.S. occupation forces. It really marked the first time U.S. troops were coming back to the United States in body bags in significant numbers. This show, Bringing Light into Darkness, has detailed examples of how the U.S. propaganda machine largely controls and creates false narratives to falsely justify U.S. foreign policy intrusions into the sovereign affairs of other countries. 
However, Marines coming back in body bags were truths that could not be so easily rationalized and dismissed regarding the Nicaraguan intervention. It was unacceptable and had to cease. And it did. However, imperialism and the accompanying domination of majority populations for the financial benefit of a few would still rule the day as it does today. In order to do so, the tactics had to change, and they did. It developed new tools for the toolbox of intervention techniques. New tools means new forms of colonialization or colonialism. These new forms constituted a change from colonialism to neocolonialism. These new forms and tools of intervention and domination of third countries is exemplified and has been exemplified in the history of U.S. intervention in Nicaragua. Following Sandino's successful resistance, the U.S. began seeking to train Nicaraguan armed forces under the four-plus-decade U.S.-supported Somoza family military dictatorship rule. Somoza's National Guard were trained by the United States' interest. Now the body bags would not be U.S. soldiers, but Nicaraguans killing Nicaraguans thus making the propaganda challenge much easier to manage. The School of Americas is a combat training school for Latin American soldiers and police. It was established in 1946 at the Panama Canal Zone. The School of Americas was later moved to its current location in Fort Benning. In 2001, it was renamed the Western Hemisphere Institute for Security and Cooperation. Since it was founded, over 80,000 Latin American military and police officers received training at the School of America or the Western Hemisphere Institute for Security and Cooperation. Among the listed graduates are some of the worst violators of human rights in the continent, including nearly a dozen Latin American dictators. So what I wanted to do with our show tonight is transition to the penetration of civil society, which complements military types of interventions and has actually supplanted it in many ways and has been shown to be very successful. But before moving to examples of that, I wanted to formally introduce our guest, and that would be Brian Wilson. Brian, I can't tell you how honored we are to have you on the show, bringing light into darkness. Welcome and Thank you for joining us. Oh, thanks for having me. Just briefly, Brian Wilson was a commander of the United States Air Force Combat Security Unit in Vietnam. Subsequently, he became a trained lawyer and has visited a number of countries examining some of the lawless violations of human rights by that U.S. foreign policy we have been referring to. From 1986 to 1990, Brian went to Nicaragua a number of times and observed firsthand the Contra War that was being led by the Reagan administration against the Nicaraguan people. He has been a justice activist for a half a century. He currently lives in Nicaragua, and we are speaking to him from Nicaragua. He's written four books, and a 2016 documentary was made about his life, Paying the Price for Peace. His website, which we will repeat a number of times, is brianwilson.com, with Wilson has two L's. Again, Brian, thank you for joining us. I thought one of the interesting issues that came up for me, I was reviewing the International Court of Justice made a determination back in the 1980s. Actually, in 84, that Nicaragua had actually filed a International Court of Justice application against the United States for its activities in Nicaragua. Before we get to the violations themselves, I just wanted to ask you, I can remember so clearly at the time the propaganda was that Nicaragua was supporting the FMLN in, in El Salvador. 
Yet, despite our satellites and AWACS surveillance planes that could read a cigarette package at 20,000 feet or whatever, yet we were not able to provide any proof of any substantial arms being transferred. Things they came up with some type of issue that they were hollowed out in a uh, canoe and some arms somehow were coming in that way. Even if true, it was to drop in the bucket compared to what we would soon learn our own government was doing in the illegal supply efforts for the Contras. And then there was the downing of Eugene Hazenfuss with several tons of arms that, in fact, we were supplying clandestinely that was coming out of the Yopongo Air Base, I believe, in El Salvador and into Nicaragua. But can you refresh us about that time in history and the accusations, the veracity of what the American public should believe about who was arming who? Well, of course, it fits the same pattern in which you were describing the history of U.S. imperialism when Somoza, the dictator, was overthrown by the Sandinista rebels in July 1979. The U.S. lost their all-time favorite dictator who'd been ruling for 40 years. And immediately, Reagan, who was elected in 1980, took office in 81. He immediately began funding. Initially, I think it was, I forgot how many million dollars, nine or ten million dollars to begin a funding fighters to help overthrow the new Sandinista government. They called themselves after Sandino. And so those Contras were introduced into Nicaragua in 1981, and they uh, were, uh, as the time went on, they became better armed and uh, many more of them. And when I interviewed the Contras in uh, 1986, who were in prison up in Esteli, they, all of them, who were, you know, poor teenagers from communities along the Honduran border. So all these young men were from very, very poor families. Uh, they had virtually no future. And the CIA system of recruiters would go through those communities and offer them jobs, basically, to join the what became known as the Contras, but they were paramilitary terrorist forces funded by the Reagan administration and trained by the CIA. What they told me, and I think I talked about 30 of them, that they were told that the Sandinistas, the government's name in power, the revolutionary government, ate the babies of Nicaraguan families. And therefore, it was very important for them to join this force so that they could kill Sandinistas before the Sandinistas killed their babies. Uh, now that sounds kind of far-fetched, but that's what I had a translator, and I was taking a lot of notes. And it's not unusual for the U.S. to make these outrageous claims. And were they, Brian, were, uh, they, were they getting, to your knowledge, were they getting paid? Were they paid for their... Yes, they were getting... Okay, that's important. Yeah, they were getting paid. paid. I don't know how much how much they were getting paid. It wasn't a lot, but it was more than they had had before they, they joined the Contras. And, of course, they were given guns and uniforms and boots and ammunition and food in addition to a small stipend. I don't remember what it was. It was, you know, Nicaragua terms, it would be a very small amount of money. But... It was more than they ever had had before. So that is how the U.S. accumulated probably as many as 25,000 fighters who were being trained and housed in camps along the Honduran border, in Honduras, just over the border from Nicaragua, and some other ones in Costa Rica, just over the border from Nicaragua. I think there were at least 30 of those camps. And incidentally, the camps were staffed 
by healthcare workers and uh, educators from the, from the Peace Corps. So Peace Corps volunteers in Nicaragua in those years were working in those culture camps. It's just another way we we politicize everything. So I didn't get into Nicaragua until '86, but I was studying a lot of reports from Nicaragua mm -hmm. starting in '79. So I knew that these cultures were butchering people. In fact, Newsweek did a feature story, I think, in 1982 with some graphic photographs showing how the, the cultures were mutilating bodies after they killed them to terrify the population to, to be subdued to contra demands and to not participate in the revolutionary struggle, which was expanding education and health care and literacy rapidly once the Sandinistas came to power in 1979. Yeah, I think that's an important point that you make because there were a lot of reports of the Contras not so readily intervening with real Sandinista troops and military, but instead harassing and, like you said, terrorizing public domains, whether it's educational or rural workers or folks. That is, was that your experience when you studied it? That Oh, yeah. That but as the war deepened in 84, 85, 86, 87, the Nicaraguan army became much more active in looking for and pushing back Contra units, either back into Honduras or into, into Costa Rica. So, But primarily, the Contras were targeting civilians and civilian targets. Civilian villages, farms, co-ops, medical clinics. They were not, obviously, interested in looking for Nicaragua Army. They were looking to destabilize the society by putting everybody in terror. So they certainly weren't interested in firefights with the Army, which, of course, they did get into firefights because the Army started getting very aggressively looking for them. But right. their primary targets were, uh, they blow, blew up all the bridges, they blew up yeah. all the electric lines. Infrastructure. Um, right. Yeah, all the infrastructure. Uh, I was on a road from Matagalpa to Puerto Cabezas in the late 80s, and that was a long trip. Uh, was on a, I was in a cattle truck, and the Contras had destroyed all 57 bridges on that road. So our, the truck was big enough that it could go through the river. It just had to avoid the rocks. But 50, there were 57 bridges that had made that a, a through road from Matagalpa to Porto Cabezas, and not one bridge was left intact. Well, it's interesting because... Just an example. Right. That's really important history that I think needs to be revived, and thank you for doing that. The International Court of Justice, in April of 84, Nicaragua started to institute a complaint. They filed a claim, yeah. Yeah, yeah, they filed a claim, and, and in their claim, they requested the court to uh, judge, you know, make judgments about some of the following deals that the United States was, just as you were indicating, recruiting, training, arming, and equipping, financing, supplying, and otherwise encouraging, supporting, aiding, and directing military and paramilitary actions against Nicaragua, that it was a violation, the activities were a violation of Articles 2-4 of the United Nations Charter, Articles 18 and 20 of the Charter of the Organization of American States, Article 8 of the Convention on Rights and Duties of States, Article 1 and 3rd of the Convention Concerning the Duties and Rights of States in the Event of Civil Strife, I'm not going to go through all of it, but they, they made claims of armed attacks against Nicaragua by air, land, and sea, incursions into Nicaragua territorial waters, aerial trespass into Nicaraguan airspace, on and on and on. At the end of the day, 
as we got towards the end of these proceedings, there was a, a determination that the United States not only was guilty of these charges, but had an obligation to pay Nicaragua reparations. And then, right. and then Nicaragua, a government withdrew the request for reparations by the UNO government that came to power in 1990. And that's really what I wanted listeners to know, that there's a really important writing piece. I mean, you've done so much important writing, a really well-documented piece on how the United States purchased that 1990 Nicaraguan election. It's dated way back on July 1, 1990, but you have all the sourcing from multitude of sources and I wanted you to kind of walk through because we started the show off talking about how the United States changed tactics of influencing third nations from armed intervention to things like penetrating civil society. We have a very detailed example with Chile in 1973 but years later here we are in Nicaragua and and you write that the U.S. through CIA and the National Endowment for Democracy orchestrated a process to consolidate a number of opposition political parties into a unified effort called UNO, United Nicaragua Opposition. Can you elaborate a little bit about the extent of how much investment we made into those elections and highlight the article findings that you very well document in your piece that is called How the U.S. Purchased the 1990 Nicaraguan Elections? Yeah, I was... As I said, I was following everything I could read about Nicaragua in those years. And then from 86 on, I was visiting Nicaragua every year, several times a year, going into the war zones. And the Contras, it wasn't ever clear that the Contras were going to have any kind of a a victory, which is what the CIA wanted. So the Sandinistas were going to have an election in 1990, they had been elected in 1984. The U.S. didn't acknowledge the election, but there was a real election in which the Sandinistas were elected. And then the next one was going to be in 1990, in which I was an election observer myself. But in the process, I was tracing the amount of funds that were going into both the, the Contra fighters and the opposition newspapers and newspapers in the United States they were creating the narrative about the Sandinistas being very evil, tyrannical, and this was all, all this money was coming from the National Endowment for Democracy and the CIA, uh, separate from the National Endowment for Democracy, and a little bit of USAID money, I think. It totaled about almost $50 million to make sure that in that election in 1990, the Sandinistas didn't win. Now, the uh, Sandinistas had a lot of... Excuse me for interrupting, had a lot of, Brian, but elab- do you mind elaborating a little bit more on the National Endowment for Democracy, how it worked hand-in-glove with uh, the CIA for our listeners? Yeah, the National Endowment for Democracy was created by President Reagan in 1983 to replace the CIA's function of interfering with elections, or what they call pro-democracy. They call it pro-democracy. And of course, they're they're telling the public, the, the U.S. public, that Nicaragua doesn't have a democracy, even though they did, and they had their elections, even though they were the cultures were fighting throughout the country. So, in 1983, the National Endowment for Democracy was created to basically, in effect, alter or change election processes that would lead to a result that the United States wanted. In other, in other words. If they didn't want the Sandinistas to win, or if they wanted to defeat it, 
Dan and Issa say we put a lot of money into the Nicaraguan civilian society in terms of newspaper articles, giving more money to the embassy to uh, hand out money literally to people on the street to vote for uh, UNO, the, the, the party the U.S. created. And since Reagan created the NED in 1983, the NED is now all over the world doing the same kind of stuff. But they started in Nicaragua in 83. That's the first time NED was applied. It was the year that it was created. And, you know, they did everything from buying Jeeps to creating radio stations, newspapers that all had the script written for them about why the Sandinistas had to be defeated. In some cases, they were saying the Sandinistas were like creating a beachhead for the Russians. You know, the same old, the same old, same old lies. But because they had all these funds, they could produce radio programs, TV programs, newspaper articles, and even street papers that were just handed out on the street about the evil, evil nature of the Sandinistas. Uh, that money all came from the NED through various Nicaragua recipients, all of whom were wealthy, who opposed any kind of social government. The Sandinistas clearly were a social government, government interested in social programs for the poor, and of course the U.S. is interested in privatizing everything. So we gave, NED gave money to the trade unions, a number of the internal opposition groups before they united under UNO to do opposition activities in the streets, a little bit of sabotage, but mostly through broadcast media and newspapers. What I found so fascinating in your article, because you document all of this, but the breakdown was when you added it all up, you broke it down into the different categories, the NED figures. You also included monies. And the CIA figures. Right, right. And, and at the end of the day, you're able to add all these n- numbers up between you know 1984 and 1990, the total that went to all these opposition parties and all these other things in civil society that you're mentioning added up to some $50 million in Nicaragua. Almost $50 million, yeah. Yeah, almost $50 million. $48 million. $48 but they only have 3.5 million people. So your article, I really appreciated the fact that you said, well, these numbers, you can throw them around, but what do they mean? And you just said, well, let's look at it by per capita. If you were to take 3.5 million Nicaraguans and divide that into the amount of money of $48 million, it turned out to be the, the equivalent in the United States per capita. It would be the equivalent of some $3.5 what, billion dollars that would be invested in the United States, right? I mean, that's the equivalent Three, amount of yeah. money. When compared to investing $48 million into Nicaragua, a country of just 3.5 million people. Before we examine this issue in in more depth, we need to take a quick pause for the cause. This is 91.7 KOOP in the capital city of Austin, Tejas. Back after this.